I'm not sure how well they heard you, but there were three little girls there watching you sing uh, as, uh, as you were sharing with that. I, I would probably say my favorite uh, faith hymns or songs are ones that have grace within it because that's, that's what it's all about. Well, this morning we begin a new series uh, in the book of Luke, and this message is going to be a sermon, but it, in many ways it's going to be a lecture as well. So uh, I'm going I'm to speak toward your head a little bit this morning. But we are going to try to bring it down to the heart and hands at the same time. But, the, you know, the truth matters. And if you've, uh, if you've ever been in a, an experience where it was pretty critical that uh, you could be assured about what was, say, was being said to you is reliable, you'll understand why the truth matters. If you've ever purchased a used car and a used car salesman uh, kind of explain maybe the history of that vehicle and what it could do or could not do, and you ask some basic question, how many owners has it had? Uh, has it been in a serious accident? And you're hoping that the, the salesman is telling you the, the truth. Because when you take it off the lot and it doesn't perform like he promised it would perform, it might be a difficulty bringing it back on the lot. And, and if you're reading the, the, the things on the label, whether it be a food item or something else, and you're, you're trying to make a decision about what you're going to purchase or put in your mouth, you're hoping that what they put on the label is actually what? True. Because that could affect your physical health. One, it could be affect your financial health and what kind of vehicle you might purchase. And what is on the label being accurate could affect your physical health. And it could go on and on and on as we think about we just had a political year and we had politicians saying all kinds of things. And we're hoping at least, I guess you could put it the way, some of the things they said were, were true or most of the things they said were true. Because our, our life as a nation is, is governed by people who lead and are they telling us the truth when they're leading but if that be true in the physical area, the financial area, or the political arena, it's even more so true in the, in the spiritual arena, that, that truth really matters. And we're going to be studying a book uh, that in the fourth verse of the, of the gospel that is recorded for us, he, he tells us the purpose of why he's writing. I'm writing this to you uh, that you might know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. We have all been taught about things in all parts of life, and we, we hope that what we're taught, whether it be in the mathematical arena or some other academic subject that we're being indoctrinated with, that we're, we're getting the truth. The, the truth in the spiritual arena has some um, proponents in various places. You, uh, if you are here last week, you heard that my brother and I went to Idaho, uh, to Idaho, I, I officiated the service for my, for my grandfather, I mean, not my grand, my uncle. And on the way back, uh, we were actually flying out of Salt Lake, and my brother had never been to the Mormon temple in Salt Lake. And so he wanted to, we had a little bit of time before our, our plane left, and he wanted to go through the tour. So we went through a variety of different arenas, and I'd been there before, and um, now they've got a lot more media that kind of informs you of the message of the, the Church of Latter-day Saints. And if you're not familiar, they, they have a prophet who can speak authoritatively. Basically, if we were to use our language, could, can speak out Scripture that is from God. And they have a, a 12-member prophetic board within their structure. And they every year, they have a prophetic conference, not like what we would say, studying in time, but they're, they're hearing words from God, from the prophets, the modern-day prophets, and they just had one in October. Well, the main prophet in the LDS church is uh, Thomas Monson, and if you go there, you'll see a picture of him. However, you see him live on, no, live, if you see him on video, he's, he's aged a little bit from his picture that's 
the bigger picture. But I, I digress. Anyway, as I was uh, look, hit, pit, pushing some buttons to, to see what they were having to say, uh, Thomas Monson um, shared words like this. Uh, we really believe that apart from Jesus, who is our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who atones for our sin, that no one has any hope of having their sins forgiven apart from the, the work of Jesus on the cross. The problem with that is that he didn't finish his little vignette that was video recorded with a period and, and stop communicating. He went on and said, however, that is not enough. Now, I have a number of Mormon friends, and I am not in opposition of relating to and caring for people of other faiths or other directions. But the, the reality is what Thomas Monson, as the prophet of the Church of Latter-day Saints, recorded a message to his followers and those who were interested in, in what they were teaching. Either that is true or what Orthodox Christianity is communicating is true. Because the Bible is clear that it's by faith and faith alone that we are saved. It's not faith plus following all the laws and practices and teachings of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. So truth matters. If somehow you're believing that faith alone is sufficient, that the work on the cross was, was, was finished, and that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, and we humbly and fully and completely come to Him by faith, and that is enough, or if you need to add, you better start adding. Or my, my dad took a turn for the worse. He's doing a little bit better as the last couple of days. But, but as uh, we were kind of rushed to the, the vintage where he is at, my mom was leaving fairly early in the morning. And one of her friends in the uh, Laguna Woods place where she lives, uh, man, <coughs> excuse me, a man named Sam, um, who they've developed a friendship with, who comes from the Islamic background. And when he found out why she was leaving, excuse me, um, he said, well, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for Allah for art. And my mom, who has a certain parts of her personality, came out right then. She says, she says uh, well, don't pray, for Allah, to pray to Allah. Allah doesn't know art. Only Jesus knows art. Now, implied in that statement, and they have a good relationship, so it wasn't antagonistic being offensive. The truth is, either, the, 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 either Allah is God or Jesus is God. They both can't be true at the same time. And so as we wrestle with the reality of what the message of Christianity, we've got to decide what is it we believe and are we convinced it's true? The truth does matter. And so this morning, we need to get the truth right. So what I'm going to do is give you an introduction about how important the truth is in terms of what we read in the Scriptures and then I'm going to give you kind of a big picture, uh, um, some perspectives on the message that God gives us about Jesus, and then uh, try to get to a main point. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 18. In John 18, Jesus has an interesting conversation uh, to a man named Pilate about the truth. And it begins in a, in a spiritual context because uh, Pilate, who I don't know if he was playing with Jesus or he was trying to play with the religious leaders that were hearing this conversation, he said, hey, I've heard that you are, you are a king. In fact, you are the king of the Jews. 
uh, John 18, verse 33, and, and Jesus answers, and he says, yes, and he says, where did you hear that from? Did you figure it out yourself, or did someone tell you? And they're going back and back, and, and then uh, he said, look, I'm not a Jew. You know I'm not a Jew. They just brought you to me, and then we pick it up in eight, John 18, verse 36, and we have these words. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to you or to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And of course, Pilate uh, you know, was saying, you know, I, your life is in my hands. And of course, Jesus said, your, my life is not in your hands. This has only happened by the, the sovereign hand of, of an all-powerful God, that this is, this is God's will that I come as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. But he said, look, my kingdom is not here. If it was, then we would, we would, we, we would be enacting it. And the kingdom, that, which is a ruling, God is ruling in the hearts of those who come to faith in Christ, and that's what He came for. There is going to be a time where the, land's, the kingdom is going to be on this land, but that's in the future. But in verse 37, Pilate responds, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly. It's always good when you get a test that you get the right answer, right? He says, You say correctly that I am a king. For this reason I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate responds with a great question. As he hears Jesus talking about he came to give out the truth, he said, what is truth? And truth, I just want to again emphasize as we begin this series in the Gospel of Luke, which is a focus on knowing the truth about Jesus. We don't want to study the life of Jesus Unless what we study about the life of Jesus is what? True. I mean, why waste our time? Now we know, and we won't turn to these passages, but I'll allude to them. Jesus made some statements about truth. In John 17, he said, Thy word, or my word, God's word, is truth. But he took it beyond the verbal expression of that which is reliable and accurate and foundational truth. He personalized it, didn't he? In John 14, in probably the most familiar words of Jesus, or one of the most familiar words of Jesus, particularly as it relates to truth, says, I am the way, the, the truth. So Jesus was truth personified. Truth mattered to Jesus. In John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40, he talked to some people who wanted to discover truth about God. He said, you search the scriptures to see in them that you can find eternal life. But you don't understand that the scriptures bear witness of me. But you're unwilling to come to the, tr- the truth about this because you're unwilling to come to me. So sometimes truth is not a matter of just discovery, but if you do discover, are you willing to commit to it, to follow it? You know, again, it's, it's that whole idea of my mind is made up, don't confuse me with uh, the facts or the truth. And then you have in in John chapter 8, verse 31 and through 32, and he talks about abiding in God's word. And he said, I want you to know, if you know the truth, it will set you free. So so this morning, we we begin kind of the the emphasis that we'll be having over a number of weeks, probably a number of months, as we look at the life of Jesus. And, And we want to look at the life of Jesus because we want to know the truth. If this is not true, then we're just being religious. But if it's the truth then we're going to follow that which God has made plain to us. 
But if you back up for a moment, you say, well, how do we know that what we believe is true? If, if, we, if we had been raised in another land, we might have been following some other doctrine or data or information that people gave to us. If we, you know, if we lived in India, the, the, the probability would be that we would be a Hindu. You know, if, if we lived in Israel, we'd probably have a Jewish perspective, which is interesting. Uh, I was up early this morning. I don't know if you know who Chris Pratt is, but he's a, a rising star in the, the movie world. And I just, the only reason I clicked on him because it said he, he believes that God brought him to the place of stardom that he is today. So I clicked on it, and, I, and he's talking about his relationship with God, and then he threw an F-bomb right in the middle of it. Well, who, how, how could anybody explain this except for the F-bomb reality of God must have done something? I don't know about you, but I, it kind of questions, gives me a question whether he really knows God. I don't think he probably, God would have him describe this, this stardom because of an F-bombing experience with, uh, with God. And then, uh, if, if you've ever, anybody ever been on Facebook? Anybody know about Facebook? Okay. Mark Z- Zuckerberg, okay, has now changed his Facebook bio, where it was, I am an atheist. And now he said, I'm no longer an atheist. And then on it, he says, Happy Christmas, no, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah. And then there's a picture of him praying at a Buddhist temple. Now, something, you, you can't have all three and believe all three are true because they're self-contradictory. I mean, you know, they, they, they don't ma- mesh. So, so we, we got to come to that point where we're convinced that not only have we got the truth, but we got truth to share to somebody else. And so again, I go back to why Luke wrote his gospel. He says, I want you to know the exact truth about what you've ta- been taught about Jesus. Well, again, this is somewhat of a lecture as well as a sermon, though I'm going to try to speak not only to your head, but also your heart and your hands in a moment. But, but as we begin looking at this, let's, let's try to get the big picture as far as the Bible, particularly as it relates to Jesus in the New Testament. And then let's try to get some perspectives about what we learn about Jesus, and then, uh, then we'll try to get the main point. Well, what's the big picture? Well, the big picture, and again, some of these things are going to be so you know, simple, but you know, we'll, we'll go a little bit further, too, with some of them. The clear truth about Jesus comes from four Gospels. If you were coming brand new to the Bible, you'd say, look at this, this pretty book, big book, and it begins from the beginning, you know, how the whole thing started. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you have all these stories about uh, God interacting with people. And you have the Jewish nation and all these things happening. And then all of a sudden there's this, this break and you have now stuff about Jesus. And when you get to the New Testament, it begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what are they? They're writings, historical narratives. And they're called Gospels. And there are four of them. And that, they give us the most information about this person who says, I am the truth and my words are true. Well, what, what is a Gospel? Well, Gospel is a, from the Greek word, gileon, it has the idea of glad tidings, or good tidings, or well tidings. That's where we get the idea of good news. The, the word gospel, and it's, it, the, the English word gospel is an Anglo-Saxon word, which means God's story. And, and the reason I give you that is, is, is you begin reading the New Testament and say, I want to start with an open mind and a, and, and a non-prejudiced mind. What am I reading? I'm reading accounts 
that people said, when I'm giving this information to you, I want you to know this is good stuff. Uh, this past week, Alice was, was telling me that on uh, one of the internet news area, I don't know if it was Yahoo News or some other place, you can click on a section that says good news. Anybody? anybody? And I go, where is that? I couldn't find it, you know. And I asked the first service, and no one could find that either. They said, I haven't tried that. But, you know, most of the news is what kind of news when you get it? It's the bad news. He said, well, there's one station or one area where if you only want good news, just click that. Well, what it's, what the gospel is good news. This is something you really want to hear if it's true. And then why is it so good? Because it's the story of God. That's, that's how it's portrayed. Now, whether we believe it or not is another thing, but that's how it's portrayed. So these four writers give us God's story, which if it's true, it's good. Well, how do we determine if it's true? Or to put it another way, how do you determine if Scripture really is from God? Now, I would assume, I haven't interviewed Chris Pratt or Mark Zuckerberg or, or some of the other ones, but if you believe there is a God, I would, I would think, if you have any kind of a high view of who God might be, that God, if he, were, if he was communicating, would, would tell you that which is true, not that which is what? False. Okay, so we would believe that God could tell truth and he would tell truth, so now we just need to determine, well, has he done it? Has he given us truth, and where is it, and how would we know it was true when we discovered it? Well, we're claiming this book is from God, and if it's from God, then we know it's true, not false. Well, how do we determine it is from God? What would be some of the tests? How, how would we come to that con- con- conclusion? And so I want to give you three things, and, and they're not, I'm not going to give you everything you, you could know about this, but at least it puts it in some handles. If someone asks me, why, why do you believe the Bible is true? Or, why do you believe the Bible's from God? Or, we'll look a little bit later, why do you believe the, God, the Bible's inspired? Or, as we're focusing on Jesus in days to come, why do you believe what you believe about Jesus is true? Well, because it comes out of this book. Why do you believe this book is true? Well, because it's from God. Why do you believe it's from God? Well, I would give, it, I would give a book that is from God at least three tests. Or, you could at least put them in these categories. One... It would have to be authentic, it would have to be authoritative, and it would have to be accepted. Now, what do you mean by that? And the first one probably has the most um, specific points related to it. It would have to be authentic. I'd have to somehow say it passed the test as being from God. That would be authentic. And there are three tests I would give for that. One would be biographical, one would be external, and one would be internal. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, biographical, or what do others mean by it? Biographical would mean, okay, if we try to, to figure out where did this book come from, did it, just, did it just happen to land underneath one of the seats in your, your pew, or did it just happen to fall on your coffee table at home? Well, where did it come from? Well, it came from people, and they wrote it, and they claimed it was from God. Well, if we go back in history, well, how do we just discover, number one, that it really came from those people who said they wrote it? right? Is it, is it reliable in terms of this, the history of it? That's the biographical test, and there's all kinds of ways to look at that, but if you compare anything that's written in the past to see if it's authentic, you'd have to say, well, how would I know it's authentic? Well, in its written documents, how close do we have from the copies of the originals to, to what we have today? Uh, have any of you ever heard of Aristotle? Shake your head that at least you've heard the name. Maybe you have a dog named Aristotle. I don't know. But, okay, you, you believe there's Aristotle. Okay, he was a pretty 
famous Greek, uh, you know, we'll call him a professor, a writer, a philosopher, okay, is that there isn't much debate that Aristotle lived or Aristotle wrote. Um, what's, what's the closest writings we have, copies of when he wrote whatever he wrote? Well, he wrote, we have copies as close as 1,400 years to when he wrote. And people are convinced that that is written by Aristotle. Well, how would you compare that with, say, the New Testament? Well, the John, there's a John Ryder fragment of a, of a New Testament writing within 35 years of when the New Testament was written. So just the bibliographical test, as far as being reliable, it was written by the people who said they wrote it. What would you have more faith in? Something that was written, 14, a copy 1,400 years ago or one, a copy 35 years ago? I'd take the 35 years, right? So the Bible passes a reliability test, the bibliographical test. But then what you do is say, okay, well, if, if the Bible really was from God, it would pass any external test. Any other historical writers writing on what's in the Bible, um, or, or there would be some other evidence from other writers that what happened here happened. And whether it was from Josephus or Pliny or other writers, there, there are things outside the Bible to attest to what it says. That's an external evidence. You'd also say, well, externally, is, is there anything in it that doesn't really uh, align with archaeological findings? And you'll find throughout it that, that there's external evidence that says what happened is, can be attested by the science of archaeology. For instance, just this last uh, month, we, you know, we celebrate Christmas. But if you look at the, the birth of Jesus in Luke, we'll take a Luke account. In Luke chapter 2, they, they talk about Cyrenius being the governor of Syria. For a while, they said, well, the Bible can't be accurate because we have no record of Cyrenius ever being governor of Syria. Well, then they dug some things up, and they discovered not only Cyrenius was the governor of Syria once, but twice, all both times within the, the time frame of the birth of Jesus. Well, that's an external evidence that what's in the Bible is accurate. The same thing with the census. They, they were wondering, did the Romans really have a census? Well, they did, and they did it because of tax purposes. And they did it every, every 14 years, and as they extrapolate back, they realize that, again, it happened right at the time of the birth of Jesus. So you look at external evidence. If, if everything in the, in, the, in the Bible was just way beyond the ability to, uh, to affirm and confirm that it actually happened because of what's been dug up, you say, well, I'm not sure it's really true. But you'll see it time and time again confirmed. Now, internal evidence... There's a lot of ways to look at it internally. You can look at it from a negative perspective. Or are, there, are, there, are there contradictions with the Bible? Everybody says that. Oh, there's all kinds of contradictions. And you ask, what contradiction are you talking about? And most people don't know a contradiction. But if they do know, they, they'll share some ones that are fairly common. But all those have explanations. And primarily the explanations, at least for someone in the Gospels, is, well, you had four different writers writing from different perspectives. And they're going to see something slightly different or they'll emphasize certain things but they're not contradictory, they're, they're supplemental. And, you, and what you have is throughout the Bible, it's, 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 it's just so amazing how internally it's consistent. But that, 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 that's, that's the authentic test. The, the other one would be the authoritative test. If the Bible really is the Word of God, then it's going to be a book like no other book. 
One, you're going to be able to attest to its authorship. You're going to be able to determine, well, did, did they just arbitrarily have people write religious things and say that's from God? Well, no, you, particularly in the New Testament, you have those who were eyewitness uh, uh, Experience, uh, the people who experienced it, or there were people right close to them that had done that. But, but look at the content. Just look, look at it prophetically. The, the Bible is a miraculous book. As you look at all the things that were predicted in the past and came true at a time in the future, you'd say that couldn't have happened by chance. That uniquely it would come from God. And, and wouldn't God put a stamp that this is from me by, by doing something miraculous in the writings. And over and over and over again, you see prophetic truth fulfilled uniquely and particularly, exactly as the, as the, the writers portrayed it. And so you, you see it authoritatively. And of course, with that, you see the Word of God used to change people's lives. It's a book that changes people's lives. And then accepting, and that's a whole different, another, uh, whole another science as well. Uh, the Word of God is affirmed by the people of God. It, it wasn't someone who, who was, you know, smarter than the average bear, you know, that say, well, I'm going to say that's the Word of God, and somebody else says that's the Word of God. You had the people of God saying, this is from Him. In other words, it... it Specifically for the New Testament, it was, it was canonized, as they say, in 393 um, A.D. at the Council of Hippo. But they, they didn't confirm authority or inspiration on the Bible. They just, they just affirmed what had been accepted throughout the centuries before that by God's people. So it's been authenticated, it's been accepted, and it's... So authoritative, and it's, it, it is a unique book. Just, just looking at its compilation, it was written over 1,500 years by 40 authors over three different continents, with three different, with three, in three different continents, by three different languages, and there is, there is a unity throughout the message. You ever played the, the game telephone, you know, where you say something to someone, and then that message is expressed, you know, in somebody else's ear throughout the room? And when you get to the end, it, it could be just 30 people, 20 people. And it, there's no semblance between the message that was given to the first person and what was received by the, the last person. Can you imagine how, how did this happen? Because it's truth. There's objective truth to convince it, to convince us. I'm, I'm just trying to give you a big picture now. This is, this is going to be on the test. You have to remember all this. No. Okay. So, so then you say, well, well, how did he do it? Well, here's where God wants us to understand inspiration. The word inspiration means God breathed. And, and actually what we have here is it's not that the authors were inspired, but the words were inspired. God uniquely took the words and brought them into, into being for us to have the exact thing he wanted to hear. Now, he moved in the hearts and minds of men to record this, but, but we need to understand that it's it's what he produces. What is inspiration? Understanding inspiration. Here's one definition, which is a good one. Inspiration is God's revelation, which is revealing truth, communicated to us through writers who use their own minds, their own words, and yet God so arranged their lives and their thoughts and the vocabularies that the words they chose out of their own minds were the very words that God determined from eternity past 
that they would use to write his truths. So God worked in people to produce what he wanted. Now, turning over for just for a moment. Well, how did he do that? Well, he combined human and divine sources. And as I put this down, I just want to remind that's really how he works today, doesn't he? I mean, today, if you know God, you, are, you have divine influence in your life, but you're still human, right? And God works through you differently than he works through other people because he uses who you are and uh, creates in your life the leading of his spirit to, to be the person he wants you to be. And so that, that's why you know, we come out different as we walk with him. There's similarities, but we are unique people in his, in his hand to be used of him. And what he did with men in the past, he said, okay, I'm going to use you to record truth for other people who are going to be followers of the truth to hear truth. Well, how did he do that? He worked in their life, one, through eyewitness experience. Uh, I just got subpoenaed for a, a, a court case on Thursday that will possibly happen on next week and the week after. And what they're asking for me is to be an eyewitness communicator of what I had experienced. And if there are multiple people that had the same experience I had, they're going to say, it sounds to me that the eyewitness message is what? It's true. So God used eyewitness experiences. He also used oral tradition. It's one thing for people to get mixed up when they hear things, but if many people say the same thing about the same event, then again, there's a, there's a, there's a testimony that that'd be true. And then if people write things down, written documents about that's also source material. But then in the midst of that, God also, and this is the divine part, the work of the Holy Spirit guided the writers of Scripture to make this true. Now, how did he do that? And again, because of time, we won't turn to the passage. But in John chapter 14, verse 26, God spoke about the Holy Spirit to come who would bring all things to remembrance, the words that were spoken to the apostles about the things that Jesus had said. So the Spirit would bring back to remembrance. Have you, have you ever forgotten something and all of a sudden it came back to, to mind, right? Have you ever forget a name? You know, you know, and then you're, just, you're just searching all those little files in your brain. So, I got to figure out what that. And sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't, okay? And then when it comes, you go, man, I'm sure glad it came. But I don't know where it came from, but it came, all right? And it, all of a sudden you remember the person's name. Well, God supernaturally did that in the apostles' thing to remember the exact words that Jesus had said. Then in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, there's, there's a word picture given. Well, how did, how did this all happen? The scripture that was delivered. And Peter said, well, you know, no scripture is, is open for uh, the, the prophet's own interpretation. And he wasn't talking about interpretation by way of meaning, by, but by way of re revealing. And he said, well, well, how did that happen? Well, what happened is that God moved like, uh, like the wind, in the sense, and the sails of a, of, a, of a boat to move along the authors of scripture to bring what God wanted. And so you had the movement of the Spirit of God in someone to, to say exactly what, what he wanted to be said, using their own experiences, their own um, resources, whether it be oral or an eyewitness experience or written documents, to say exactly what God wanted. So this is both a human and a divine book. And the reason we believe it's, it has the stamp of God on it, because it's, it's authentic, it's authoritative, and it's been accepted by God's people. Okay, that's the big picture. Now, real quickly, 
What's the unique perspectives? Again, the whole emphasis we're going to try to do in the, in the weeks to come is knowing the truth about Jesus. Well, we got four main messages about Jesus from four different authors. One was Matthew, one was Mark, one was Luke, and one was John. Well, what was the emphasis of Matthew? And just, well, I'm going to go through this rapid fire. Matthew presents Jesus as king. And if you like a word picture, that's Jesus is the, the king of the jungle. He's the lion. He, he is the ruler. And you see in the beginning of, of Matthew's record of the life of Jesus, the, the, the Magi come and, and says to Herod, Herod, who is, where is the king of the Jew? We have come to what? Worship him. Because he was more than just a baby. He was, he was the king. And Matthew speaks to Jews about Jesus being the fulfiller of all prophecy and being the one who was promised to be the ruler. Mark, which is the shortest of the three gospels, he presents Jesus. The fascinating thing about, one of the fascinating things about Mark is that Mark uses the word uthos, which means immediately or suddenly or quickly, which is one reason I like Mark because, man, everything happens fast. It's like this. It's just it's like this. And the reason, because Jesus is now, now no longer presented as king, but he's presented as a servant. You know, the, 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 the animal of a bearing weight, the, the ox, the one who is hitched up. And we need to realize as we see Jesus king, that he's the one who calls the shots in our life. But we need to realize if Jesus is servant, and Mark 10, 45 says, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom many. As we follow the truth about Jesus, then we'll become more of a servant. And then you have Luke, and, and Luke, this is the unique thing about Luke. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man. And really, if, if it is true, this amazing picture of God becoming a man, if it is true, what kind of man would the God-man be? He'd be a perfect man, wouldn't he? He'd be sinless. He would speak like no one else had spoken before. He would, he would be what God intended all people to be if they're following God perfectly. And he was the God who became man. And so he's the perfect man. And, and you really think about the Greek world. And, and, and Luke is the only author in the New Testament that is not Jewish. He's a Gentile. And you remember the Greeks. The Greeks were fascinated with the human body and the human mind. And they were always looking for perfection. Well, they never got it. But Jesus presents it. And it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus grew in, in, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. You know what that means? That Jesus, as the perfect man, grew physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually. And that's what God's called us to be and to do. And then John, with a familiar message about John, is that John presents Jesus as God, the eagle who soars. And John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's the unique perspective. Again, we have two minutes. What's the main point this morning? And let me now actually read from Luke. I've quoted from Luke. But in Luke chapter 1, I just want to read four verses as we begin. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1, we have this introduced to us from Dr. Luke, who was a medical doctor probably. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in consecutive order most excellent Theophilus. So in that very flowery language, you see, you see all of what I've 
Hopefully you see all or some of what I said this morning makes sense. Luke was called by God to, to write out the truth about Jesus. And God was going to divinely lead him in all that he was to say, and, and some would be revealed supernaturally to him, but he would also use natural means to do that. He said, I'm going to investigate this. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to talk to eyewitnesses. I'm going to make sure that everything is accurate and complete and, and give you a, a logical order of what, what all transpired. And you say, well, why did he do that? I mean, obviously he did that because the, the, the Spirit of God led him to do that. But we find that in verse 4. So that you, speaking to Theophilus, and most excellent means he's probably someone high up in the Roman hierarchy, someone of significance, he says, I'm, right, I'm doing all of this in a painstaking way, very carefully, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And what he's talking about, the things you've been taught about Jesus. So what's the main point? The main point is that, that God wants us to know the truth about Jesus. Not, not just not just fables or stories like the, the, the Greek gods. I want you to know the truth that's rooted in history, not just people's personal experience, but it's rooted in history, and it's been investigated in great detail so that you might be convinced, again, this is not just something you want to be true, but it is true. Isn't it interesting how sometimes we'll, we'll add words to words that don't need to be added to. I mean, you, you have an adjective to something that, that uh, doesn't really need to have an adjective. Like, if we really understood what the word grace means, we would never have to put the A word in front of grace. What's the A word in front of it? Amazing, right? I mean, why do you say you need to say amazing grace? I mean, grace is getting that which you don't deserve. How, it can't be any better than that. It's God's unmerited favor. It can't be any better than that. But we want to make sure people understood what grace is, so we say amazing grace. Now, if something is true, do you need to qualify it? No, it's either true or it's false. But he says, look, I know how, how people make reference to truth. So I want you to know I'm going to write to you the exact truth. And why do we need to know the exact truth? Because of what Luke writes in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man, and he's lifting up Jesus as the Son of Man. He's the promised one from the Old Testament. But the, the Son of Man, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is what? Lost. So as we think about the truth, the truth is about Jesus, but the truth is also about us. We can so easily be lost. And when we're lost and someone points us to the way, we better, we better make sure that that way is the true way, right? And when we desire to help other people, we want to be convinced that the way we're pointing them to is the truth. So I leave all of us with this. Let me speak to the head, the, the heart, and the hands. God always wants us to know something, feel something, and do something. What does He want us to know? There are reasons to believe. There, there comes a point where you, you, you've got to take that step of faith, but there are reasons to believe. It's not just wishful thinking. Secondly, to the heart. If, if God loves us so much to do all these things to convince us of the truth, then He must love us. 
And so we can leave assured of God's love because he's pursuing us. And then thirdly, for our hands, what does God want us to do? He wants us to, to do what's so obvious. He wants us to get the message out about the truth. This is, what helps, this is what helps anyone who is lost be found. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you want us to know the truth, and the truth is in a person, and the, pr- and the truth sets us free, and, and the truth is recorded in a book, uh, and it's lived out in a person. And, and Father, we want that truth to be lived out in us. And Father, if there be anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, might they, might they come to the person who is the truth? Might they recognize that when Jesus died on the cross for those sins, it was true. And then he rose again that it was true. And then when he can change our lives, that's true. And Father, for us who have already made that commitment, might we recognize that each day we can be more faithful to the truth and more convinced of the truth and more desirous to share that truth with others. Father, help us as we we journey into knowing more carefully the story of Jesus. Might it change our lives, individually and collectively. And we ask this in Christ's name.